You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. On Friday, October 11th, President Donald Trump and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He had a very well-publicized meeting. The president announced that the U.S. had come to a very substantial phase one deal, subject to it getting written. In this episode, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, Jenny Leonard. Jenny is a trade reporter for Bloomberg News, and and really, she's one of the very best in the business. Jenny has been covering the daily beat of the trade war since even before there was a trade war. And this week, as basically no one really knew what was going on, I essentially bet that of anyone, Jenny would have the best idea. Now, before we start, I should say that we are recording this on Monday, October 14th in the morning Washington DC time. Now, technically it is a holiday for much of America right now, but obviously trade talks never sleeps and and Jenny has joined us bright and early on her day off. So Jenny, thank you and hello. Hey. So Jenny, you've been covering trade for a while. Is covering the the US-China trade war any different from the normal trade portfolio? What's it like? What makes this particular this particular storyline really hard? Yeah, I think the hardest part of covering this trade war is that the pace is just so crazy. I woke up last night and got up this morning and out of Beijing we have news that we didn't expect 12 hours ago. And another really hard part of this is that there's so many voices of of any other trade file that the Trump administration is is really focused on. The China one is really where you get the the biggest spectrum of input from outside advisors, from Trump administration officials. And so it's really hard to cut through all of the all of the noise and find out what's really the story. Let's talk about the the run up to this mini deal that was announced on on Friday, October 11th, which at this stage, the, the Chinese are still not actually calling a deal. Could you tell us about when you first got wind of this thing? So the first time we found out that there were discussions going on inside the White House for something like a mini deal uh, was a month ago. Uh, We reported on September 12th that Trump administration officials were kind of putting together something like a framework that would basically um, just have the goal of putting off further tariff increases. So we had one that was scheduled for this week, and then we have another one for December 15th that Trump advisors, including the U.S. trade rep, Robert Lighthizer, wanted to kind of avoid. And so they put together this mini package, and the semantics really matter. They didn't really like that we called it mini, so maybe call it interim or partial or whatever you want to call it. That would include large purchases by the Chinese of U.S. ag and energy commodities. It would include some commitments on IP, which is, as you know, why this trade war really started, and then tariff reprieve from the U.S. side. When you reported this, was there any official response, acknowledgement that these discussions were going on? 
Yeah, so we got immediate pushback from the White House. Larry Kudlow, the White House economic advisor, went on TV and talked to reporters, was, of course, asked about it and called it a novella, fake news, you know, just the usual White House responses when there's a story that moves the markets in a in a way that they don't really like. So, yeah, the, the pushback was, was pretty immediate, and um, there was a you know, kind of a, a messaging war against that story where Peter Navarro and other officials went out and said the president would never sign off on anything that is in a, a whole full deal where we get everything we want from the Chinese. The president will not settle for anything less. And here we are. Do you have a sense for why the American side didn't aim for, for more ambition out of this mini deal? Why weren't they able to get you know, some sort of agreement on subsidies or state-owned enterprises and, and those other sort of big issues? Yeah, I think the true answer to this is maybe that reality caught up with everyone. The the um, mood at the table got worse and worse over the past year and a half uh, with multiple, you know, tariff increases and and other things like the blacklisting of, of Chinese companies that are very important to the Chinese leadership. Obviously, we have Hong Kong going on right now. So I think in September, when, when we reported on these talks, people were having a reality check inside the White House and said, what could we get that would be not embarrassing to the president to endorse, but would also serve as sort of a holdover so we can not go forward with tariffs in December, which, as you know, would, you know, tax every single iPhone and laptop and kids toy. And that would really probably start to bite um, into the U.S. economy. And people like Robert Lighthizer know this. So they were kind of coming to terms with the reality here. What can we realistically get from the Chinese in this short time frame and then maybe take another crack at it later? And so that's kind of where we got, you know, the package that they announced on Friday. So even with this narrower, less ambitious sort of mini interim deal, were you getting the impression that there were differences between the two sides? What what were the points of disagreement in this most recent round of talks? Yeah, I think there's always disagreement at the table between, you know, the U.S. and China on, one, how to sell anything, which we see right now. Uh, you know, one side calls it a phase one deal. One side calls it progress that needs more talks until we actually get to sign something. But even on the substance, you know, the U.S. was pushing for tangible outcomes on IP. We know that for months now, they have been kind of stuck on how to figure out enforcement of this whole deal. So we had a sense that they were they were trying to get to this mini deal, but there's there's always disagreements but, but between the two sides. But then leading up to, to this week, we had these additional complications that got introduced. You had this flap with the, the National Basketball Association, uh, the Houston Rockets general manager, you know, started tweeting out things about Hong Kong. You had 28 more Chinese companies being added to the Americans entity list, bringing up the Uyghurs and the, the human rights violations in China. Was there a sense that some of that might actually interfere and, and, and we might actually not, not get a deal this time around? I think it was definitely an interesting backdrop to to this meeting last week. Generally, I think that a lot of the stuff that we kind of follow in real time 
once a, when a meeting happens, it's almost baked. Or in in this case, it was it was baked that they would get to something because it was very clear more than a month ago that President Trump wanted a deal. He wanted something to announce. Clearly, they had to narrow the scope significantly. But I I also looked at this and said, wow, this is kind of a an even crazier time in the relationship given, you know, everyone now in, in this country seems to be paying attention to what's going on in Hong Kong because it's now related to NBA and, and U.S. culture. Human rights, also the first time the Trump administration brought up that in relation to trade sanctions, which was really interesting and obviously a very sore point for the Chinese. But what's really remarkable is that Lighthizer, who of course is leading the talks for the U.S., is very good at just staying in his lane. Uh, the Chinese have brought a number of issues to him at the table. Huawei comes up every single meeting. They want to talk about export controls. So they have like their laundry list of things that they want to kind of bring into the talks. And Lighthizer is very good at saying, this is not my file. You need to talk to someone else in this administration. Or actually, sometimes he says, this decision is above my pay grade. And that's true. Let's talk then about what we know about the substance of this mini deal with all of the caveats that it hasn't actually been properly agreed yet. So how much do we know about what what is in it? Could you could you kind of go through the list of things that they tried to announce? Yeah, so if we trust what the president said and his advisors when they announced this in the Oval Office on Friday, there's some piece in it that addresses currency. There's something on IP and tech transfer, although the president wasn't really clear how much of this would be in phase one versus phase two, and he even mentioned phase three. There are large purchases by the Chinese of U.S. agriculture. Uh, The president also talked without really specifying about financial services. And we know that there will be some kind of enforcement aspect to this whole package. I think we know very little about the actual details for each of these items, and we probably won't know or see this until roughly in a month if they actually do go forward with signing this um, at APEC in November. What is interesting is that on on the currency piece, that was something that the two sides had actually agreed on roughly eight months ago. And that was sort of the first thing they wanted to roll out as, you know, maybe we're getting to 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 an agreement or, you know, this is a goodwill gesture. And obviously we know since then, the Trump administration labeled China a currency manipulator. That's kind of still in the balance if, if that label holds or not. On agriculture, the president said that China would buy over the next two years 40 to 50 billion which seems like a lot. It's kind of double what uh, China bought in 2017, which is pre-trade war levels. So when the relationship was actually pretty good, also unclear is really what commodities the Chinese will buy. We haven't really heard from the Chinese if this is how they see this, this deal coming together or if they actually did have a handshake deal on any of these items. So that will be interesting to find out from from Chinese state media in the coming days, I would say. And of course, the the other big piece of this, I suppose, is President Trump has said he won't raise the tariffs on October 15th from 25 to 30 percent on the $250 billion worth of imports from China. Uh, so that that's something. 
uh, but they haven't said anything about putting off the the tariffs um, that are scheduled to go on on December fifteenth. So I guess that that's still an open question, or at least on the U.S. side, hasn't been something they're they're willing to give up. Stepping back a bit, um, how confident are you in in the idea that this agreement that the White House uh, said had, had had been made on Friday that this thing is actually going to stick? If we had recorded this podcast on Friday afternoon or Saturday, I would have told you uh, I think it's going to 100% derail. And <laughs> because just because if you if you look at when they will supposedly sign this deal until the 2020 election, we have exactly one year where this is just open attack season on what Trump didn't get in this deal. The news this morning kind of confirmed what I was what I was thinking and that the Chinese said, you know, actually, we're not ready to sign anything until we have more talks, until we know for sure that a tariff increase or the next round of tariffs that's scheduled for December 15 is not going into effect. And probably a bunch of other things that the Chinese put on the table as a condition for this to be signed. So the announcement on Friday, of course, was good news for farmers, everyone who wanted to, you know, believe in this actually working out. And then the news coming out of China today gives this whole thing a lot more uncertainty. This even this phase one deal, how the president calls it, is is very fragile. But if you look at fast forward to six months from now, the reaction we saw from Democrats already on Friday to how this deal is basically worthless. And, you know, did we really start this trade war and hurt farmers and hurt U.S. uh, workers and consumers for this? You know, that's kind of the reaction we saw from the Democrats. And that times 100 uh, in the next six months just makes me think that there's very little chance that this deal can actually stick. Do you think a, a, a part of where we are uh, on this deal right now is reflective of how the Trump administration has, has chosen to negotiate? So maybe specifically, it seemed like we were close to a deal back in the spring uh, with the two sides. But at the last minute, things really broke down. Uh, and then after that, obviously, we saw lots and lots of tariffs go on and, and even more threatened tariffs go on on the U.S. side. Are the things that the Chinese appeared willing to give in the spring that, that now seem to be off the table that aren't a part of this deal? Yeah, I think there definitely are a lot of pieces that were maybe gettable in the spring that are pretty much off the table right now. You know, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, To be realistic, there was never going to be a commitment by the Chinese to totally dismantle their economic model. That was never something that Lighthizer was going to get, also not something that he ever thought he was going to get. But there was some kind of resemblance of a concession by the Chinese to say, you know, we can acknowledge this in this deal. We can be more transparent about the subsidies that we give which, you know, is a longstanding complaint by the U.S. So that was that's something that would have been a very good way to sell this deal at home. There was also, according to my sources, there were actually commitments by the Chinese on cloud and data and IP that went beyond what we will see in any deal now. On IP and tech transfer, again, that's why the Trump administration started this whole trade war and why they thought, Tariffs are necessary to offset 
the economic damage that China does by stealing our IP um, and forcing technology transfer. So on, on those items that are really core to this whole dispute, there just won't be anything with teeth in any deal that they get now. And do you have a sense for, for why that is? Was it that, you know, back in the spring when, when the Chinese finally saw what those commitments would have meant once, once they were written down, they couldn't agree? I think Liu He, the chief negotiator for the Chinese, came here with less of a mandate than we all thought he did uh, when he returned home uh, in the spring with something that was good in Bob Lighthizer's eyes. It wasn't good for the Chinese leadership back home once once the Politburo had been briefed. There also, of course, is this impulsiveness by the president of reacting to to basically negotiate on Twitter, right? I mean, if if it was just Bob Lighthizer doing his job, uh, negotiating behind closed doors, which is how he wants to negotiate, and and kind of treating the Chinese with the pressure, but also the respect that's necessary to get them to the table and have them stay at the table, maybe this could have gone differently. The feelings by the president towards China and Xi Jinping have been so hot and cold that the Chinese are actually worried about an embarrassment. They don't want to, again, you know, repeat what happened in 2017 and in 2018, where you know, they had something and thought they actually knew how to handle President Trump, and then he proved them wrong. So I think in, in terms of next steps, you already mentioned that perhaps in about a month, they're going to see if they can translate this verbal agreement into something written on paper. So that that's what we should all be looking out for. Is there anything else that you're watching out for apart from that meeting? Or is, is that where all of the action is? I think in the in the near term between now and the signing of this potential agreement what's what I will be looking for is what is the reaction in the US what are lawmakers saying about this phase 1 deal both on the democratic and the republican side we already saw that democrats as expected went after this deal and said it's not addressing what you you know, got us into this trade war for. But even on the Republican side, there's a lot of China hawks on the Republican side that actually also would like to have a full deal that addresses structural issues that want something like Huawei untouched because they see this as separate from the trade discussion. They say this is a national security matter that should stay a national security matter and you should not trade this away. President, of course, has indicated multiple times he wouldn't mind trading it away if he got a better trade deal out of this whole thing. So I think the reaction in Washington will be very interesting as a guiding light for is this deal going to stick or will we maybe never get to the signing? Stepping back from the real intricacies of of this, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions that people have of the, of the trade war. What do you think that people that are looking at this from the outside most typically get wrong? I think an interesting misconception is where people see Robert Lighthizer on the spectrum of Trump advisors when it comes to China hawk versus China dove. And, and that is partly because Lighthizer 
is such a, you know, private person. He doesn't go on TV. We don't often, you know, hear him speak in public. Reporters don't really get access to him. But the interesting thing is that he is not on the spectrum, uh, how I would see it. He is not where a hawk like Peter Navarro is. So Lighthizer is much more strategic in the way that he's negotiating. He's much more of a Washingtonian, I would say. He thinks three steps ahead and knows the Democrats will attack me because... X. He negotiates this with a longer term plan in mind. He thinks about the election. He thinks about the U.S. economy. We see this because he is actually one of the people who is trying to come up with some kind of framework that will get us past the December 15 tariffs and avoid that that next escalation in the trade war. He, he really is not where Peter Navarro is. So I think that's interesting because he's the architect of all this. And if it was just him, I think this whole trade war would have would have happened very differently from how it happened with Trump's tweets kind of as, at the backdrop of it. When you hear about decoupling, what do you think? Yeah, pretty hard to do. <laughs> I think uh, everyone has has kind of come to terms with that. But I will say there are true believers in this administration uh, that think the only way to save America is to decouple from China. We see this on, obviously, the technological side with the blacklisting of a lot of companies uh, that actually still get a lot of stuff supplied from the U.S. because there are loopholes in the law that still allow companies to ship to to these blacklisted companies. And if there's one thing I've found out in covering this whole thing, it's companies are very smart in getting around the rules and figuring out sort of their way to continue doing business. Obviously, a lot of companies have been hurt. And if you're a small or medium-sized company, you don't have the resources uh, like some of the big ones. But it's been very interesting to see how businesses have been trying to navigate this. And in many cases, actually successfully kind of gotten around what the Trump administration is trying to do, uh, which is to say that decoupling is very hard and it it takes a, a full court press. And I think because we know where the president is on this, I don't think that there's enough of a push from, you know, the top to really go forward with with decoupling. My last question to you on on this, and and something that I often say when asked about the trade war is that a better American strategy would have been if the Trump administration had decided not to go at it alone, if they decided to to work with America's allies uh, in, in concert with other countries that have common concerns. Do you get the impression from, from your vantage point that any of this is, is actually going on that, that either side is thinking about what the rest of the world is thinking in all of this and how they're viewing it? Yeah, I think you're not alone in uh, that sort of uh, view that the Trump administration took on a very big task uh, on its own. There is not that much multilateral work going on. One thing that uh, uh, Bob Lighthizer is doing is talking with the Japanese and the Europeans about subsidies and state-owned enterprises as sort of a a pseudo WTO conversation that could evolve into something multilateral. It doesn't really seem like that's going anywhere. People are very skeptical on how serious the U.S. is 
in, in these talks. If you ask more cynical people, they would say Bob Lighthizer is actually only doing this so that when he gets criticism on how he isn't working with allies, he can point to that dialogue. So those people in the Trump administration that agree with you, Chad, are uh, making that point right now because, as you know, we're coming up to a deadline in mid-November where the U.S. may impose tariffs on European autos. Uh, and, and that's still an open question whether or not that will happen. Uh, but the people in the Trump administration that make the point that we can't start another trade war with an ally after all that we've been through are making this point to the president right now. Jenny, thank you very much. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Jenny Leonard at Bloomberg News for joining us today and keeping us informed every day during the trade war. And thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. I'm at Jen DeBen. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to the number of sides that need to agree that there is a truce and a deal and no more tariffs, two would be better than one.